0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today.
1: Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like, every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way, too, until I got Rocket Money Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to RocketMoney.com/Wondery. That's RocketMoney.com/Wondery. RocketMoney.com/Wondery. <laughs>
2: It was February 24th, 1999, and Lauryn Hill was on top of the world. Standing on the stage of the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles, she had just accepted the Grammy Award for Album of the Year for her best-selling solo debut, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. It was the first hip-hop album ever to win that award in the history of the Grammys. She even told the audience, This is crazy, because this is hip-hop music. Uh, After rocketing to worldwide fame a few years earlier as a member of the Fugees, Hill had taken a big risk with her solo debut, and it made her an even bigger superstar at age 23. When she accepted her Best New Artist trophy earlier in the evening, she came on stage carrying a Bible, which she opened to Psalm 40, and read, I waited patiently for the Lord, He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on the rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to my God. Hill won five Grammys that year, more than any woman had won before her in a single night. Just a year later, Lauren Hill had all but disappeared. After the success of Miseducation, she withdrew from public life, feeling disillusioned with celebrity and the music business. More than 20 years later, she has never released another studio album. For some, like the artist Her, that's okay. Nobody's complaining about, where's the next one, where's the next one? Because we still are playing this one over and over
3: again. We never get tired of it that's what makes it so special and i wish we had another one but there will never be an album that lives up to miseducation that will always be its own thing you can try to
2: beat it you can try to make another one but you won't one two
3: three four five breakdown baby
2: i'm Brittany spanos senior writer for rolling stone and your host for rolling stone's 500 greatest albums in this episode we're looking back at the miseducation of lauren hill which remains one of the most beloved hip-hop albums of all time Later, I'll be joined by a panel of experts to talk about how its lasting influence helped rank it as the 10th greatest album ever made on our all-new list. But first, got to understand that making an album this timeless wasn't easy.
3: Miseducation, every day it means something more <laughs> to me, actually. People automatically thought, you know, oh my, their teachers didn't teach anything, but that that wasn't it.
2: Um, That's Lauren Hill speaking in a rare interview a couple of years after Miseducation. But... This is from the member archive of the American Academy of Achievement. The complete interview can be accessed on the Academy's What It Takes podcast episode, featuring Academy member Lauren Hill.
3: You know, when I thought I was my most wise, really not wise at all. And in my humility and in those places that most people wouldn't expect a lesson to come from, that's where I learned so much.
2: Everyone who met Hill knew she was a star long before it came true. Producer Gordon Williams, who goes by the name Commissioner Gordon, worked on the album as an engineer. He first met Hill at a session in the mid-90s when she was a student at Columbia University with dreams of a music career.
4: This is like a real hardcore hip-hop session. So, you know, you got a bunch of guys, bear all over the place, blunts, everybody's getting their lyrics together. And it's a real man energy. And then Lauren walks in with a little twist in her hand. She has a backpack on and she's like, you know, I, I got to finish some schoolwork. So I'll be over here when you're ready. So I put it in record and Lauren starts and she starts freestyling. And I'm like, yo, who's this girl? And then in the middle of freestyling, she starts singing. It was blowing me away. But the thing that I started noticing is that all the guys that were in the room, you know, quote unquote, hardcore thugs, the whole room gets quiet. So when it got to the end, she said, OK, so um, all right. So what you want me to do? <laughs> and to me, I was like, well, I think you already did it.
2: Hill grew up in South Orange, New Jersey, in a suburban house filled with classic soul music and steeped in Baptist faith. She was in high school when she met the two Haitian American cousins, Pras Michel and Wyclef Jean, who would become her bandmates in the Fugees. She was only 20 when the Fugees' second album, The Score, became a runaway success in 1996, selling more than 6 million copies in the U.S., largely on the strength of Hill's vocals. She was emerging as the most charismatic star, not just in the Fugees, but in music, period. At the same time, she was romantically involved with her bandmate, Wyclef Shawn. When that started to come apart, things got complicated in the Fugees. Hill began a new relationship with Rohan Marley, Bob Marley's son. And in 1997, she gave birth to their first child, a boy named Zion. By that time, Hill was ready to make her first solo record but not everyone was on board. Here's how Chris Schwartz, the president of the Fuji's record label, Rough House Records, remembers the double standard that Hill faced from their major label distribution partners at Columbia and Sony.
5: Why Clef made a solo record, fine, no problem. Nobody batted an eye. She went to do a solo record. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. We got to do another Fuji's record and all this different stuff. And it was like, no, she wants to make her own record. Wyclef made his own record. She wants to make her own record.
2: We reached out to Hill for this podcast. And while she doesn't give interviews anymore, she did agree to answer some questions over email. We had an actor read her responses.
6: When I decided that I wanted to try a solo project, I was met with incredible resistance and discouragement from a number of places that should have been supportive. So that had a motivating factor. But it was less about proving myself and more about creating something I wanted to see and hear exist in the world.
2: Hill was creatively on fire by this point, with a vision that went well beyond the limits of the Fugees. She spent some time writing songs for some of R&B and Gospel's leading artists, from Aretha Franklin to CeCe Winans to Mary J. Blige.
7: It was incredible working with these other artists, but the thing is, the world was waiting on Lauren.
2: That's Veda Nobles, a producer and self-described co-pilot on much of Miseducation. Nobles remembers the moment it was clear Hill was ready to make this record. It was when she was writing the song X Factor, a painfully heartfelt breakup ballad for another artist.
7: X Factor was being made to give away, literally, to that group X Factor. And it was like, wait a minute. This song is too personal.
2: Here's Hill in her own words, again speaking with the American Academy of Achievement.
3: I didn't actually make a decision to be solo. It really just happened. I, I promise you that it's hard to explain, but i had intended to be in the group forever until I found myself in, in circumstances where I felt the, the inner desire to express myself.
7: So she never declared like, okay, today we're working on my album, but it needed to be done. And it just kind of shifted into that zone.
2: Musically, Hill was pulling from all the classics as she entered the studio. She was listening to a lot of Bob Marley and Marvin Gaye. She was especially drawn to Stevie Wonder's work from the 70s. Again, Commissioner Gordon.
4: I remember she basically looked at the back of like songs of the key of life and she said to me one day she was like look i see everything on that they use on this record okay i want all of that in the studio i was like what and literally she had that kind of pull i mean she was very successful at the time we had so many vintage instruments but i always remember she wanted a harpsichord
2: song by song hill found herself writing about the biggest turning points in her life she told us
6: I always wanted to be a motivator of positive change. It's in all of my lyrics, that desire to see my community get out of its own way, identify and confront internal and external obstacles, and experience the heights of love and self-love that provoke transformation. I sang from that place and chose to share the joy and ecstasy of it, as well as the disappointments, entanglements, and life lessons that I had learned at that point.
2: One of those experiences was the birth of her first child, Zion, which inspired the sweet dedication to Zion.
3: Unsure what the balance held I touched my belly overwhelmed By what I had been chosen to perform
4: I remember the first time she sang Zion to me. There was no music or anything. She had it written, and we were working one night, and she said, Brother G, I want you to hear this. She sat real close next to me, and came close to my ear and like sang it really soft like a whisper in my ear and she's singing about her son there was a lot of pressure on her to not have a baby and like Lauren what are you doing
3: look at your career they say Lauren baby use your head but instead I chose to use my heart now the joy of my world is inside
4: that girl sang in my ear let me tell you I'm getting goosebumps again just thinking about how that sounded in my ear like yo what are we about to do like that was incredible
3: how beautiful is nothing more than to wait door. I've never been in love like this before
2: the album's first smash single Wop, that thing got its title from an old doo-wop box set that Hill came across. Lanisha Randolph, who sang back on the song, remembers the session well.
8: The week that I had my baby, actually, I just checked out of the hospital and two or three days later got a call to do doo-wop. <laughs> Yo, remember Yo. back on the bully when
2: cats
3: used to harmonize She's
8: lying. a rapper. She wanted to bring some of that doo-wop swing essence to the song. So she was like, you know, in the beginning, maybe we could do like certain barbshop quartet kind of things. So she invited a couple of other singers she had knew from high school, and ironically I had knew a few of them just from living in New Jersey, like from church, and we stayed in the studio, we kind of sang around in a little circle for a few hours, then we had dinner, and then we just recorded it. <laughs>
2: collaborators from the Miseducation era remember most is how warm and welcoming the vibe was at those sessions. Here's Candice Anderson, another backup singer from the album.
3: She was a new mom. Lanisha was a new mom. All three of us, our children were all born in that same year. So it was a really family-oriented space. Her parents were there, all the other musicians. It wasn't like a sterile environment. It was really filled with the ambience, the energy. The feel was... Real
2: natural and organic.
7: We used to, you know, like to crack jokes. And Lauren loves to laugh.
2: But Hill was on strict orders to protect her voice at the time. Here's Veda Nobles.
7: So we'd be saying a little joke on the side and then she hears it. She just looked and she would just say, no, no, stop, please. Just, just stop.
2: This record took a while to make, with Hill bouncing between studios in New York, New Jersey, and Jamaica. Again, Commissioner Gordon.
4: When I say we work for a year and a half, we literally work for a year and a half. That's a lot of work. (laughs) Because a lot of those songs may have changed. Like a song like Lost Ones, she probably went to about 20 hooks or 30 hooks just on Lost Ones alone.
2: As the session stretched on, with Hill frequently working 18-hour days, Commissioner Gordon remembers pressure from the label to wrap it up.
4: They were going crazy, man. Like, there's a lot of pressure for her to deliver the record as we got towards the end, because we had been working on it for a while, and there was a lot of backlash that you get that you can't bring to her. She's the artist. So I have to protect her no matter what was said to me in the daytime, which some of the things weren't too kind, let me say that. You know, some label people can be pretty rough, you know, especially when they got a lot of money invested, because at that point, you know, you're talking about a year and a half.
2: When the album was finally done, Everyone involved knew they had just made something special. They felt changed by the experience of making this album. But the challenges weren't over. Chris Schwartz remembers what happened when his major label partners got Wind of Hill's plan for the iconic illustration of herself on the cover.
5: In the late 90s, a female R&B singer LP cover was usually the artist wearing minimal clothing, looking sexy, this and that. And she already had put together this whole rendering, as you know, as being the album cover. And when they heard that there was going to be a rendering instead of a photo, they kind of lost their minds. They're like flipping out because there's not a photo of her on the cover. You know, there's no way to articulate to them that, look, this is the visual piece of something that's very special.
2: Miseducation was released in August 1998. By then, it was clear that the album would be a major hit no matter what the cover looked like.
5: We did a white label for the song Lost Ones. I think we printed up like 2,000 of them and sent them out to DJs. We didn't even tell Sony about it. We just did it. And by the time that song hit the clubs and the Tastemaker DJs, it was all over. I mean, it was like this record was going to be a locomotive. There was no way to stop it.
2: Hill's voice was everywhere that summer. I was watching
3: My Little Cousins, and I was washing the dishes, and I just hear this, the boot, cat, boot, And I'm like, where is that? It's the, the neighbor was
2: blasting the entire album. Like I just sat there, and I was just like, wow. Again, that's Hill's backup singer Candice Anderson. And here's Jerry Blair, Columbia's head of promotions at the time.
5: I knew one day when I was driving my friend's house in Terrytown, and when I saw... White girls bopping to doo-wop, I knew that we had something.
2: Commissioner Gordon, who makes sound for the Miseducation World Tour, remembers Hill's triumphant homecoming to Madison Square Garden in 1999, just a few weeks after her historic night at the Grammys.
4: I think it was three nights at the Garden. It was like celebrity row. Prince was standing next to me. Denzel Washington is over here. Rosie O'Donnell's to my left, and it and it wouldn't stop. Like Lionel Richie wants to come. Everybody wants to be
2: there because they all
4: want to see her.
2: But Hill says she was also perceived by some as making trouble and being disruptive. Again, we had an actor read Lauren Hill's written responses to some of our questions.
6: All of my albums have probably addressed systemic racism to some degree. Before this was something this generation openly talked about. I was called crazy. Now, over a decade later, we hear this as part of the mainstream chorus okay, so chalk some of it up to leadership and how that works. I was clearly ahead, but you also have to acknowledge the blatant denial that went down with that. The public abuse and ostracizing while suppressing and copying what I had done. I protested with still no real acknowledgement that all of that even happened is a lot.
2: And behind the scenes, drama was brewing. Around the time of the album's release, Lauren Hill and her management were sued by a group of four session musicians who claimed that they had not been properly credited for their work arranging and producing the music on miseducation. Their lawsuit was settled out of court in 2001 on undisclosed terms. Here's Veda Nobles, who was one of the people who brought the suit.
7: It was a very, very tough challenge that we went through for a period because it was a big artist big corporation and the world, all the fans, everybody's there. So who are you? Who are you guys? We were able to, after three years, come to a settlement resolution. And I would say this, as far as us and Lauren, it was devastating for our relationship.
2: Here's what Hill has to say when looking back on the making of miseducation.
6: I have some periods of woe, some periods of sorrow and great pain. Yes, but regret is tough because I ended up with a clarity I might not have been able to achieve any other way. I would have done a few things differently if I could go back. I would have done my best to shield myself so that I could better shield my children. I would have rejected the manipulation, unfair force and pressure put on me much earlier. I would have benefited from having more awareness about the dangers of fame. I would have been more communicative with everyone truly involved with the miseducation and fought hard for the importance of candid expression. I would have demanded what I needed and removed people antagonistic to that sooner than I did.
2: In the years that followed, Lauren Hill withdrew from public life almost entirely. It was one of the most dramatic disappearing acts in music history. Her next full-length release was an MTV Unplugged album in 2002, full of stark acoustic songs about her family and faith and the wickedness of the world. It connected deeply with listeners like Kanye West, who sampled one of Hill's unplugged songs a couple of years later for All Falls Down. But it couldn't have sounded more different from Miseducation. And while she has since returned to performing in concert, she's never made another studio album, in part because of this. The
6: wild thing is that no one from my label ever called me and asked me how we can help you make another album. Ever. Ever. Did I say ever? Ever. Ever. With the miseducation, there was no precedent. I was, for the most part, free to explore, experiment, and express. After the miseducation, there were scores of tentacled obstructionists, politics, repressing agendas, unrealistic expectations, and saboteurs everywhere. People had included me in their own narratives of their successes as it pertained to my album, and if this contradicted my experience, I was considered an enemy. Artist suppression is definitely a thing. I won't go too much into it here, but where there should have been overwhelming support, there wasn't any.
2: Hill also wrote about how she wasn't sure she wanted to put her family through another record.
6: The warp speed I had to move at in order to defy the norm put me and my family under a hyper-accelerated, hyper-tense, and unfortunately underappreciated pace. I sacrificed the quality of my life to help people experience something that should have been unreachable before then. When I saw people struggle to appreciate what that took, I had to pull back and make sure I and my family were safe and good. I'm still doing that. I continue to tour and share with audiences all over the world, but I also full-time work on the trauma, stifling and stunting that came with all of that and how my family and I were affected. In many ways, we're living now, making up for the years where we couldn't be as free as we should have been able to.
2: But in the end, when asked whether Miseducation was the album she intended it to be,
6: I've always been pretty critical of myself artistically, so of course there are things I hear that could have been done differently. But the love in the album, the passion, its intention is to me undeniable. I think my intention was simply to make something that made my foremothers and forefathers in music and social and political struggle know that someone received what they sacrificed to give us, and to let my peers know that we could walk in that truth proudly and confidently. At that time, I felt like it was a duty or responsibility to do so. I challenged the norm and introduced a new standard. I believe the miseducation did that, and I believe I still do this. Defy convention when the convention is questionable.
2: And it's not just Hill who thinks this. The miseducation of Lauren Hill was recently included in the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress. Drake and Cardi B have both made hits sampling the song X Factor, and the album itself remains incredibly popular. Here's Chris Schwartz from Lauren Hill's label, Rough House.
5: My daughter was in school in, in Germany last year, and she said in the city of Berlin, one day she heard it like six different times, like in restaurants, at a flea market, and you know.
2: And again, Candace Anderson, who still tours as one of Hill's backup vocalists. I mean, it's already been 20 plus years and there are
3: parents who bring their children to the concerts and um, they share it. You know, this will help me get through this or this
2: was something that spoke to my heart, that touched me. Perhaps no one speaks to this album's enduring influence better than her, who is one of contemporary R&B's most distinctive songwriters and performers. She put Miseducation at number one on her ballot for Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time.
8: I
3: love to cover X Factor. To Zion was one of my favorites to play. Yeah, I mean the whole album I've, I've attempted to do my own version of. It's timeless and you know, I'm. nobody's complaining about where's the next one? Where's the next one? Because we still are playing this one over and over again. We never get tired of it. That's what makes it so special. And I wish we had another one, but there will never be an album that lives up to Miseducation. That will always be its own thing.
2: Miseducation of Lauryn Hill placed at number 10 on Rolling Stone's all new list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. After a short break, our roundtable guests will dig into what was at stake and why she left it all behind. We'll be right back.
9: My name is Jamila Woods, and I'm a singer and a poet from Chicago, Illinois.
10: Um, Jamil Smith, senior writer for Rolling Stone magazine.
8: Hi, my name is Dr. Joan Morgan, and I am a writer and the program director for the Center for Black Visual Culture at NYU.
2: Dr. Morgan also wrote a book about the album called She Be Twenty Years at the Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. So, do you all remember the first time you heard this album?
10: I don't remember the first time that I actually heard the album. I remember the anticipation of the album. I remember thinking about the Fugees and how excited I had been about that album and thinking that Lauren was the best part of that, for better or for worse. And I felt like I really wanted to hear what she had to say on her own. And I knew her brother, Melaney, in college a little bit and heard him speak of how talented she was. And you know, I was really looking forward to see how that vision was articulated in an album, and I, it was <laughs> it was more than I ever ever expected.
9: I don't remember the exact first moment of hearing it, but I I just feel like it was in the water a lot when I was growing up, like in the beauty salon or just different places I would be hearing music. Um, But in college, I remember my acapella group, we sang a lot of her songs. So that was when I really started to dissect it more musically. I remember we sang like Tell Him and some other songs. And yeah, so, but I I really think uh, like that thing as the song that I would hear like just kind of soundtracking my life a lot
8: I'm pretty sure I don't because in my other life I was a music journalist and we listened to music in absolutely artificial ways which means that it probably came to me from the label or I was at a listening party what I do remember hearing for the first time was lost ones in the club when it was leaked and I lost my mind like to me that still is the hallmark of the album and one of my favorite battle records like Ever. There's just not even a response to it. It's an absolute massacre. And I remember being in the club and I remember the reaction and the anticipation of it's finally coming. It's finally here. We didn't know then that it was like the single on the album because we were still waiting for the album, but she was there and solo and a singular voice. And clearly, you know, Wyclef took one to the head. So. I remember the moment really well, actually.
2: (laughs) To both that and something that Jamila brought up is the idea of this album being such a part of a a zeitgeist and sort of one of those albums that was so critical to a moment, something that you would hear everywhere and that almost everyone was listening to at the same time, which so rarely we experience anymore. Did that feel very much that way in your communities and the cities that you were living at the time?
8: You know, I think that the thing that becomes important to remember about talking about the miseducation is the time, right? So there's not so much hip hop out that we're not all listening to the same thing at the same time. You're listening to all of the hottest stuff at the same time. What made the miseducation different, frankly, was that white people were really listening to it too. It wasn't just that all the hip hop heads like agreed because if you were a hip hop you were long awaiting this album, like Jamil said, but it was the fact that it was everywhere. It was the fact that Lauren had captured the attention of fashion magazines that she had permeated these spaces that were really kind of prior to Lily White. And, you know, she'd become a bit of an it girl and we hadn't really had like a hip hop it girl. So it that moment was bigger than I think the music. It was all of these different cultural spaces that she was permeating in the same at the same time that were that were like really far and removed from hip hop, to be quite honest.
2: Jamil, you had put this album on your personal ballot for the 500 greatest albums. Can you tell me about where it landed for you and why it made the the top 50 cut?
10: Oh, it landed very high. Uh, I can't remember exactly which number, but it was something that I felt like needed to be put forth a little bit further on the list. I remember it being a little bit too far down the older list. And I said to myself, well, I mean, this was one of those few records that represented a true tipping point. It was a cultural tipping point. It was a tipping point within music. It was a tipping point, frankly, for how women as artists within this industry are able to express themselves and, or, or at least able to navigate the industry. Because here's a woman who did this while she was pregnant. She made a whole song about it against the advice of a lot of people having this baby at this age. And she said, I'm sick of waiting on men to help me do what I need to do, help me realize my dream. I'm going to get myself a new crew and and do what I have to do. I mean, we see the, the precedent that set, at least the modern precedent, that it set influencing everyone from, I would say, Beyonce to Taylor Swift. I mean, we had got folks who are doing their own thing in different ways, I think, in a large part because of what Lauren did.
2: What is it about this album that makes it so great?
8: So one of the things that is really significant about this album is that it broadens the language and the scope for what qualifies as a hip hop album. There was a lot of debate when this album came out that it was even considered a hip hop album. People thought it had way too much pop and soul and R&B influence in it. I mean, she barely rhymes on this album, right? And so people really took offense to the idea that this is what the Grammys decided to embrace as hip hop. That's the same year Jay Z and others boycotted the Grammys because of its treatment of rap music. And there were a lot of real solid hip hop heads, many of the men who really did not see this as a hip hop album. Now that didn't mean that they didn't think it was a dope album, but they didn't think it was a hip hop album. The fact that we routinely call it a hip hop album now shows how much she did to really, not just to make those boundaries a lot more elastic, you know, how much freedom she gave. There was a very binary time of like R&B versus hip hop. I mean, Mary J. Blige is the original queen of hip hop soul, right? But honestly, Lauren is the one that actually mutes that debate, <laughs> like, like that you can be, hip, be placed in hip hop and soul and reggae and all these different Black diasporic spaces musically at the same time and still have that be considered part of, Hip hop culture, and you know, quite frankly, she's she's quite palatable. I mean, that's also a period of time where people are having real arguments about representation of female MCs as being like too sexual, um, hypersexualized, basically kind of being female versions of what we complain about with the male, you know, the misogyny of male rappers. And Lauren comes in with her like high priestess, you know, white suit, <laughs> high fashion, dreadlocked. and says, I'm stepping into this space and I'm bringing all of myself with me. It literally captures the potential and hope at the end of the 20th century that hip hop had for the culture and itself. And for that reason, I think it's always going to resonate. It's always going to be significant and and there's no follow-up from her to kind of have her dispute that. You know what I mean? So what's this singular, important, tremendous moment?
2: Jamila and Jamila, like how would you even categorize this album? Can it be categorized and where do you kind of see it in a very nebulous number of genres that it represents? But where does it stand as a, a rap album for for both of you?
9: I really like what Joan said about how it was fusing all of those elements of R&B and soul and hip hop, and that feels very normal now. So I think definitely in that sense, seeing her as a model for so many people and kind of breaking through. And I think that's definitely an influence on me because while I'm not a rapper, I do come from poetry and I find a lot of times just a certain density of flow that that I appreciate being able to do both like go between kind of sing rapping, and I definitely attribute that to her.
10: I think that there's really something that we need to evaluate with regards to what hip hop is supposed to be, You know, who's actually making that definition, especially at that time. And I think what she did with this is said, well, not only am I going to do this thing my way and exploit all of my talents and put them all into what I know as hip hop, but I am going to help redefine the genre for other people, so that people understand that they can take it beyond even where I'm taking it, even if that wasn't her intention, it certainly was the effect.
2: Jamila, I want to talk a little bit about the impact that Lauren has had on you as an artist and how she has shaped you as a as a writer and a musician. if you can speak a little bit to her influence on you.
9: Yeah, I think this album in particular is a such a inspiration in terms of storytelling and like creating a sense of a world in an album, like the dramaturgy of an album. I think about a lot just from the school bell ringing and the interludes throughout, I think were a really big point of inspiration for me for my first album, because I love the way that, you know, creating that environment and the conversation around love happening throughout speaks to what's happening in the songs and kind of like primes the listener for what they're about to hear in the song. Um, And so when I was making my album, I was thinking of, you know, doing something similar like that. And I guess my introverted self was like, "Ooh, I'm a little intimidated by the idea of bringing people together, ask them questions in a room. Let me just give them my number and give them the questions. And like I had them call me and leave a voicemail answering the questions. And kind of that became like the thread through the album. But I love the idea of kind of like the layers of conversations around a theme happening. And that was something that really uh, stuck with me to set the stage a little bit for this album,
2: Lauren was already world famous by the age of 23. There was a whole life that she had lived in just five years before she had released the album. Joan, can you catch us up a little bit on who Lauren was in the 90s leading up to Education, and why it was so highly anticipated?
8: So obviously she comes to us via the Fugees, right? And That was a time where if you were a female MC, you really needed a male crew to get any light, like, you know, it was really difficult to do that without. But the difference with Lauren is that there was this sense that her being in the group held her back a little bit. Like, we just simply were not getting all of what could happen if she could just be free and just run with it. Lauren really arrives to us famous, you know what I mean? She doesn't have the same climb that other female MC does in terms of when she enters our consciousness. She enters with the Fugees. She was also an actress. And then, you know, the other things that come out about her, she went to Columbia, she's super smart, she's super pretty. The number of magazines that covers that Lauren did were unheard of for a female MC at that time, and the kind of covers, like really high fashion spaces. So I think that she, again, had a way of just captivating the public imagination. I honestly don't think we've seen that again until Lupita, that kind of fascination about who is she, where is she from? But there was also a real, an exceptionalism. She was just not your average color girl, basically. So I don't think that we have a sense of Lauren really before that, there are not that many stories of like, yo, I used to see her, you know, in some club back in the day, really struggling, <laughs> or uh, she got booed off the stage of the Apollo. No one saw that. That's something that we have now know is part of her lore and her magic.
2: I know that the industry issues that she had had were a big reason why she left public life and kind of abandoned a lot of the the bigness of her career at that time. But how was the press treating Lauren? With the level of exceptionalism they were putting on her and the amount of obvious pressure that comes with that.
8: It's not that something happened that was unusual given the level of Lauren's fame. It was a moment where the balance of I'm pregnant and, you know, because in my interviews with other people around her, she went hard. Like she was a workaholic, she would be on set at a photo shoot till three o'clock in the morning. When you, and you are becoming a mother, that's a different set of considerations. And I think that what people, the press, the industry, the expectation was, was that she should keep giving as if that wasn't part of her reality. And I think we forced her to make a very unfortunate choice.
2: The lack of music that we've gotten since has, in some ways, become just as big of a story as the music itself, and almost has added a, a level of mystery to Lauren. Jamil, have you come to understand the path she's taken more or less as the, the decades have gone on?
10: I mean, as I've learned more about her, yes. I mean, I think that's the, the key thing that we all need to do as fans of the album is to read her words, listen to her. She has been out there saying, hey this is a path that I went down and these are some of the reasons. I mean, it's been made very clear that we had a report in 2008 in Rolling Stone with oral history of this record that people can go read. She makes it very plain. One of the things that stood out for me in that was her remark about how once you taste or feel liberation, everything else more or less feels secondary or feels strange or foreign. And I think that she got a taste of what she had been looking for and whether or not we got another album or we consider it misspent genius is really i don't think any of our business to me the genius obviously was well spent we see it you know we hear it through our radios and our popular music of all genres these days i mean her genius is out there just because it's not her singing it i guess there is a certain tragedy in that but it's her life and i think it's one of the first times that I think a lot of folks were forced to reckon with artists as human beings and understand the humanity of a person who could create
8: something like that.
10: It was a pivotal moment.
8: Lauren doesn't owe anybody a second, third album. She really doesn't. The only the only entity she owed an album was her label. That's really between her and her label. And so if that is the end of the sort of relationship between her and audience. I think we need to be good with that, just as Jameel said.
2: With Miseducation and how big it was, There, it's so rare for an album to not only exist in the time that it came out and to have completely taken over radio, Grammys, everything that comes with that, but to also have a lot of songs have second, third, fourth, fifth lives. And I'm thinking even just to a couple of years ago on the 20th anniversary, the same year that Joan had released her book, She Begat This, the... Song X Factor had a really incredible comeback of being sampled by Drake and Cardi B. And of course, around that same time, you know, you had Beyonce performing it live on tour, you had her and Tori Kelly covering it. What is it about a song like that coming back? And what are some of the the other most enduring songs for you from the album that have continued to feel like brand new as you've listened to them?
10: I don't think about any particular track. I think about love in that album. The love that she expressed for us as Black people, it was, you know, I mean, Public Enemy defended us. There were folks who were out here, you know, being defenders of Blackness. She was like an advocate for us in a way. And I felt that through the album in a way that I hadn't really felt in a hip hop album before. I was struck by how how powerful her vision for the world was. Even in moments like in X Factor, where love is fraught or failed, it was very real and very palpable. And making that space for that within hip-hop, within R&B, within the melange of both of them was extraordinary and remains so.
2: I would be curious from the perspective of someone like Jamila, who is an artist that has found both solace and inspiration in this album. If Miseducation of Lauryn Hill didn't happen, what would we have lost in music today?
9: Mm, That's a huge question. Um, I think for me, I remember once my friend who's also, she's a singer and she sings kind of like soul R&B music and she was kind of just talking about the stereotype of always writing about love like all those songs are all about love and she's like i want to try to write about other things and i think ari lennox recently tweeted something similar like wanting to write something else that's about dudes and sex and stuff and i think that what this album gave to me was a way of thinking about a concept like love from so many different angles and perspectives the love of your neighborhood losing love and like the vulnerability of that to me that maybe exists in other places, but I've never seen it synthesized quite like this album. So that was a a really inspiring thing to me. And also the way that whether consciously or not, her image and, you know, white suit dreadlocks, she was this example of not needing to fit or like kind of breaking out of, you know, what you might expect her to look like or what you might even expect her to act like if she's writing this album that everyone is like relating to, you want her to be this kind of like, maybe always likable or always kind of on time type person, but she's refuting that. So yeah, I think I would have lost an example of just like the way that she has multitudes in that way.
8: There is no black girl magic without Lauren Hill. There are no YouTube videos telling you how to do your locks or you know, that's a time where I had to beg barbers in Brooklyn to give me a Caesar, especially the first one, because they were like, you're going to start crying in my chair. I don't want to be the one to cut it. There were no East Saint Laurent ads with girls with dreadlocks. There were none of those things prior to Lauren. And when we can click on an archive now, literally a visual archive, by going to hashtag Black Girl Magic, that exists because Lauren existed and in so many ways she has and this album are bigger than herself in ways that I'm sure she never planned. But my God, where would we be if she hadn't if she hadn't existed and it it hadn't existed? SP-
2: Lauren Hill's The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill ranks 10th on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, which can be found on our website, rollingstone.com, and in the magazine's October issue. I'm Brittany Spanos. This is Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums. Executive producers are Christian Horde, Nathan Brackett, and Gus Winner. It's produced by Simon Bosick levinson Emrys Eller, and me, mixed by Michelle Lanz. Our senior producer is Jasmine Morris. Megan McBride is our production manager. Bridget Shelsey is our production assistant. Additional reporting by Jonathan Bernstein. Fact-checking by Jonathan Bernstein and Hannah Murphy. Supervising executives for Amazon Music are Raymond Roker and Morgan Jones. And for Rolling Stone, Jason Fine. Special thanks to voice actor Nicole Lloyd Drayton. You can find this podcast exclusively on Amazon Music, on the web, the mobile app, or on any Echo device.